The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Improving the Patient Experience in Non-Tuberculous Mycobacterial Lung Disease, the Intersection of Early Diagnosis, Customized Therapy, and Adverse Event Management. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash WCS 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello. This is Patrick Flume from the Medical University of South Carolina. Welcome to this educational activity on improving the patient experience in non-tuberculous mycobacterial lung disease. First, we will hear a patient with NTMLD discuss her experiences with living with NTMLD and her diagnosis. I started coughing and I just kept coughing a lot. And I finally went to a doctor um, in, in South Carolina. And the, he, this guy was, I, um, this, this gentleman was my primary care doctor. And he said it was bronchitis and put me on an antibiotic for a couple weeks. And it's, it, it appeared to help. But then a little while later, I would start coughing again. So... I had two rounds with a primary care doctor who by then was a boutique doctor. And he said bronchitis. And I, you know, we had this back and forth. Finally, he said, I'm going to send you to a pulmonologist. So I went to a pulmonologist in Charleston. And he said, you have bronchitis. And did the same thing the first doctor did. Around this time, a friend of mine who heard me coughing said, Susan, have you ever heard of MAC? I went back to the primary care doctor and asked to get a sputum sample, and I, he gave me a cup, and I, it's, it went off to the hospital. The hospital said, there's too much bacteria in this. We can't test it. I'm going to go to my ENT who sort of does what I ask for. And I said, I want a CT scan of my chest. And we got results. It says you could, you have bronchiectasis, which is the first time I ever heard that word. And then he said, it, it, it also said that there might be a mycobacterial infection and I should see a pulmonologist. So I got an appointment to see a pulmonologist in Connecticut and get a, uh, oh, I'm, I'm blanking on the name of it, but it's a technique where they take sputum out of your lung and, uh, and then have it tested. And that showed MAC. I didn't know that for about six weeks because I know now that it takes a while. It took a year and a bunch of doctors and me basically kind of showing in the way. My whole day is planned around my lung protocols, I call them, my lung protocols. And... I have 
basically, and I have to get a good night's sleep, so that's important, and I ha- so I have to have enough sleep. But I have six free hours out of the house every day that I can be out of the house every day from basically 10 o'clock in the morning to 4 in the afternoon. As you've heard, NTMLD can have a significant impact on patients and their day-to-day lives. So who gets non-tuberculous mycobacterial lung disease? There are a certain number of patients that are at greater risk. One of those risk factors is age. If you look at the annual incidence or prevalence of NTM lung disease, what you find is that the numbers are increasing over time and increasing in persons who are older. The prevalence and incidence of NTMLD is also increasing in those patients who have underlying obstructive lung disease. So in these data from a VA population with COPD, what you can see is that there is a marked increase in both the incidence and prevalence of NTM infections. Patients who have underlying lung architectural abnormalities, mainly bronchiectasis, are at great risk for developing chronic infection with non-tuberculous mycobacteria. We can also see it in patients who have other underlying conditions like immunodeficiencies or autoimmune disease, a history of previous other infections, and also patients who have recurrent reflux and aspiration, introducing the bacteria into their lungs. There are some environmental risk factors. These pathogens, they live in the soil, they like water. And so you tend to see them in warmer climates near the water, so coastal regions tend to have a greater prevalence of infection. But we also look to whether the patient has risks at their home, such as having a hot tub, uh, shower aerosols, uh, or the potential for other contaminated water resources. These organisms grow slowly, so they tend to take time for us to make the diagnosis. And so key to this Uh, diagnosis is having a suspicion of non-tuberculous lung disease. So in general, these patients will have pulmonary symptoms, typically cough that is persistent, not always productive of sputum, but frequently can be. They might have hemoptysis, but usually scant to mild. They might have chest pain, although that tends to be rather uncommon. But they also can have constitutional symptoms, mainly fatigue or perhaps malaise. They might have impaired uh, appetite and suffering from weight loss. They might have low-grade fevers or night sweats, kind of like having the flu all the time. These are pretty nonspecific, and so you've got to look for those symptoms that might raise a suspicion of NTM lung disease. We have diagnostic criteria that we use to establish the diagnosis of NTM lung disease. First, they have symptoms, as we've just discussed. They have radiographic features that are compatible with non-tuberculous mycobacterial lung disease. Typically, these are nodules, bronchiectasis, perhaps even cavities. And then we must have an organism. And so we tend to try to get multiple cultures to try and identify the pathogen. If we get it through bronchoscopy, one sample is sufficient to know that it's present in the lower airways. But for sputum cultures, we like to see it occur more than once to increase the likelihood that the organism is in the lower airways. So why is NTMLD often delayed in times to make the diagnosis? Data have shown us that it it typically is about two years 
from the onset of symptoms before the diagnosis is actually made in these patients. And the reasons for this is because the symptoms are pretty nonspecific and generally are being treated for other conditions such as asthma or chronic bronchitis. In addition, the cultures take time for them to become positive. And so when we get these cultures, we tell our patients that it may take up to six weeks before we decide that they're negative. And so critical to this is having a low index of suspicion and then pursuing microbiologic cultures. This is Patrick Flume from the Medical University of South Carolina. Welcome to this educational activity on improving the patient experience in NTMLD. When the decision has been made to treat the patient for NTMLD, there are specific goals that we have in mind. Number one is we're trying to improve whatever it was that led us to recommend treatment. For example, if they have symptoms such as cough, or they have radiographic features which have shown uh, increasing cavity size or worse nodules. Our second major goal is to try and eradicate the infection. So we're trying to make sure that the patients have achieved what we call culture conversion, where there are multiple cultures that have turned negative with the greater likelihood that the infection actually has been eradicated. And the third major goal is that we're trying to improve their quality of life. And so in that is not merely the symptoms that we're trying to improve upon, but we don't want our therapies to complicate their symptoms as well. So we focus on adverse events. So what are the factors that influence that decision to treat? And I'm going to focus on nodular bronchiectatic non, uh, lung disease because those that have radiographic changes such as cavities, I think everyone is convinced that those patients would benefit from therapy. So we're need to do a, a, an assessment of the risks of treatment because the treatment is going to require multiple medications for a long period of time against the, the potential benefits of what we're trying to improve. And it's best done using an interprofessional approach. So the first question is, is, what is the evidence that the NTM are the cause of the symptoms? So it's important to rule out any other causes because you want to treat those first. For example, if they have reflux and aspiration and you can get that under control, that might be the best thing and to get them to back to asymptomatic. The second question is, is how symptomatic is the patient and how much do those symptoms impact their life? Because they may be willing to take that trade that if, as long as it's not progressing, they can live with what they have, but if there's any evidence of it getting worse, then that necessitate, necessitates treatment. Is there any evidence of radiographic progression that you're seeing active destruction of the lung, that should prompt therapy because there's no doubt the infection is causing the problem. What are the patient's comorbidities and are they fully treated? So just like I spoke above about the evidence that the NTM are the cause of the symptoms, we want to make sure that we treat their bronchiectasis and their mucus retention. If they have underlying conditions like immunosuppression or immunodeficiency, those need to be treated. Addressing issues related to their hearing, their reflux, as well as looking at their other medications to make sure there's not going to be interaction with the antibiotic therapy that you're going to recommend. What is the patient's short-term and long-term prognosis? Trying to balance that decision of what are we trying to achieve and how will it improve that patient's life? And finally, what does the patient want? They need to have their voice heard in terms of what the options are. When we are treating MAC, the a key ingredient in that regimen is the macrolide antibiotic.
And so assuming that the most of these organisms are macrolide susceptible, then the next question is, is what is the nature of their disease? Is it nodular bronchiectasis disease or are there cavities present? If they don't have any cavities, they merely have nodular bronchiectasis, the guidelines recommend a three-drug regimen including a macrolide, rifampin, and a thambutol, typically on a three-times-a-week regimen. If, however, they have more advanced disease, then that regimen is intensified, going to daily therapy and possibly adding amikacin. In the appropriate subject, surgery might be an option. Now, if the organism is not susceptible to the macrolide, then obviously we need to have an alternative choice. So certainly on the rifampin and ethambutol, and then we look at other treatment options. Here I've offered some uh, dosing recommendations for these medications. I don't need to go through them, but I recommend that you download the practice aids so that you have that available to you. Many patients will achieve culture conversion and assume eradication of therapy, and the guidelines would recommend treating those patients for one year after achievement of culture conversion. But for those patients who don't achieve culture conversion, we define that as treatment refractory disease. So in patients who've been treated for at least six months with guideline-based therapy and yet have persistently positive cultures, that is a definition of treatment refractory disease, and the recommendations are to add therapy to that regimen. Now, there is only one medication which is approved for that indication, and that is the liposomal inhalation solution for amikacin, and we call it ALICE. The addition of ALICE to the treatment regimen would then be recommended. So what is amikacin liposome inhalation suspension? It is amikacin, uh, which has been encapsulated in liposomes intended for inhalational delivery. And so with that inhaled delivery, there is some free amikacin readily available, but others that are locked up into those liposomes, which then can be picked up into the alveolar macrophages, migrate through the airway biofilm, and the hope is that we get high concentrations of drug to the site of infection, but yet limit systemic exposure. The data to support the use of ALICE was based on the data from the CONVERT study. And these were patients who had treatment refractory disease who were then randomized to receive either ALICE or um, continue with their regular therapy and looking at the rate of culture conversion in those patients. Now the definition of culture conversion required three consecutive months of negative cultures. So they needed to have that first negative culture no later than the fourth month. And what you can see from these data is that those patients who had ALICE added to their regimen, an additional 30% of patients achieved culture conversion. Now in the placebo group, or they weren't getting a placebo, but the control group where they remained on their guideline-based therapy, about 9% ultimately did achieve culture conversion as well. But there was a clear difference with an odds ratio of greater than four and that led to the approval of ALICE as for, uh, added therapy for treatment refractory MAC. These data uh, demonstrated the sustainability as well as the durability of culture conversion in these patients. So in patients who achieve culture conversion by month six, the probability of remaining culture negative at the end of treatment was much greater in those patients who remained on ALICE. 
you can see of those patients who remained in the control group, um, only 30% of them remained culture negative at the end of therapy. And three months after therapy was stopped, none of them had remained culture negative. So the data showed that this was a sustained benefit in those patients who had been treated for the entire time with ALICE in addition to their guideline-based therapy. ALICE is reasonably safe. Uh, like many inhaled medications, there can be some respiratory side effects. So dysphonia was common, uh, cough, uh, even breathlessness was much more common in those patients uh, who are on the inhaled antibiotic. But in general, it has been reasonably well tolerated uh, compared to not being on ALICE. There was a 12-month open-label extension trial. So for those patients who had not achieved culture conversion, in those patients who had been naive to ALICE, so these were patients who had just been on guideline-based therapy, now initiated with ALICE, what was comforting was that they saw a similar result as it had been the patients who had been treated. That is, approximately 30% of those patients achieved culture conversion within that six-month period of time. In those who had not achieved culture conversion, despite being on ALICE, and remember, they had to achieve culture conversion by the fourth month, but if they continued on therapy, what we could see is an additional 10 to 15% of patients achieved culture conversion. So it wasn't that they didn't, still couldn't benefit if they remained on persistent therapy. So these were encouraging data. There are a number of other therapeutic agents which are currently under investigation for the treatment of MAC lung disease. Uh, these are all being looked at in um, investigational studies, some being looked at uh, in treatment-naive patients, meaning as a uh, new therapy, and others that are looking at it in the treatment refractory as an add-on therapy to guideline uh, therapy. This is Gwen Hewitt professor from National Jewish Health. Welcome to this educational activity on improving the patient experience in NTM lung disease. Well, let's start out with saying, how can the interprofessional team improve NTM lung disease care? And this is a multidisciplinary approach that's going to involve not only a physician, but potentially nurse practitioners, PAs, nurses within the office, and all these team players, in addition to the patient, will be involved in understanding and learning medication administration, making sure that the patient is able to continue taking the medicine if they're having any difficulties taking it or adverse events, and how the progress is going to the minimum of 12 months treatment that is going to be undertaken when we start treatment for NTM lung disease. It's important to have a team approach because you're not only managing the NTM lung disease, but you're also co-managing more often than not comorbidities such as bronchiectasis and GERD and hypertension and any number of other issues. And our pharmacists certainly are very important team players to help us manage NTM lung disease in a multidisciplinary approach. Well, when a patient embarks on treatment or is starting to embark on treatment, there are things that the physician and care team must do prior to choosing a treatment regimen. 
So the patient is going to need baseline blood work, usually a CBC and a comprehensive metabolic profile, as well as some type of x-ray, usually a CT scan of the chest to assess how advanced or not advanced the NTM lung disease is at the time we're going to initiate antibiotic treatment. And Many of these tests will continue throughout the treatment course at varying times. So initially, when a patient is starting on treatment, you're generally going to get blood work once a month, and you're generally going to get sputum analysis once a month. But the CT scans uh, are much more cumbersome and... Um, Need to be, we need to watch the radiation exposure. So those are only going to be obtained every three to six months after initiating treatment. This slide is packed with information. So I am suggesting that you download this practice aid because it really illustrates each of the important coordinators and participates, participants in the coordination of care for somebody with NTM lung disease. Let's go back to our patient again and hear about some of her experiences with regard to treatment and her healthcare providers. I'm on, I have been on for nine years, a, a three, three antibiotic treatments, um, two are oral, and one is through a nebulizer. Those three I've tolerated beautifully. From time to time, though, I have to have IVs, IV treatment. It's a huge part of my daily routine, and it's an important part. And it's a part that I really wasn't taking full advantage of for, uh, I would say, half of the time I've had the NTM. And I use, first of all, I use um, a thing that opens up my lungs that I take, I breathe in, and I have an expander that does that. I use an aerobica then for, for the, the actual lung clearance. But prior to, I do it twice a day. I do it in the morning when I get up. I vote, I open up my lungs. And prior to that, prior to getting up, I sleep on a pillow that's on a, on an incline. And I, I, that pillow has been wonderful. So I'm never lying flat. I was sent by one of my doctors to see a lung therapist in New York City. He showed me positions lying down to do this, twisting around and, and f six different positions during the whole time. And what a difference it makes. It's, I, the, and my sputum production is went through the roof after that. It was, it was a great, it was a great, great tip. Hello, this is Gwen Hewitt, professor from National Jewish Health. 
Welcome to this educational activity on improving the patient experience in NTM lung disease. Before we get started, let's go back to our patient again and hear what she has to say about side effects that she experienced with her treatment. All of these drugs have side effects. One of them has diminished my hearing to the point that I had to, I had to have hearing aids, so that's no big deal. Everybody my age has hearing aids. The bottom line was they thought maybe I had cancer in my eyes because of deposits of color in the corners. But again, it's that one drug. I, I have very, very dry skin. I have to use lots and lots of lotion on my legs, on my arms to keep my skin moist. So, and there, there's another, one other drug that I took for a while and it was determined that it was affecting my quality of life because there was an enormous uh, time constraint about having an empty stomach four hours before and four hours after. And it, it was all these eating things. Now, this, this lung condition has caused me to lose weight. And I'm trying to gain weight. And this drug was working in the opposite direction. So I was taken off it because it was really one that the doctors have had success with on some of their patients with what I have. But it, I'd rather have the Haagen-Dazs. As you've heard, the side effects can be pretty burdensome. But we always have ways that we can deal with them. Well, let's talk about the adverse effects associated with guideline-based therapy. And that guideline-based therapy is based on rigorous scientific study that has come up with three oral antibiotic groups that you will be started on. The first group is called the macrolides, and the most common of the two antibiotics in that group is called azithromycin. The second group is called the rifamycins, and the most commonly prescribed medication in that group is called rifampin. But another antibiotic in that same group called rifibutin is sometimes utilized as well. And the third group only has one, and it's called ethambutol. And it's important to note that of these three groups, rifampin is the most commonly associated drug that can cause many, if not most, of these side effects that are listed in this slide. Certainly, rash is one of the most common side effects that we can see, not only with rifampin, but with the other two drugs as well. But by far, rifampin and rif its cousin, rifibutin, cause rash most. All of these can cause uh, nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. And we have tricks of the trade to help manage each and every one of these. As I said earlier, any drug, uh, even an aspirin, can cause a rash, but certainly uh, these antibiotics can each and every one of them cause a rash. But I would say that rifampin is the most uh, commonly noted offending antibiotic to cause a rash of the treatment for NTM lung disease. And it's exceedingly important that if you notice a rash, you contact your healthcare practitioners immediately because the drug needs to be stopped and your physician will have uh, some ideas as to how to make the rash 
resolve quicker and hopefully not reappear. And this may involve reintroducing it slowly, bringing an allergist in to help do something called desensitization or use some antihistamine medications. There are a variety of tricks of the trade, again, that we can use to help overcome this potential problem. Well, as I alluded to, gastrointestinal upset is not an uncommon thing. I would say the most common thing initially is nausea. What I tend to give patients is a probiotic because believe it or not, when you take a probiotic every day, that tends to help with the nausea. But we can use some antacids as well or perhaps spread out the medications a little bit. So the nausea is usually not difficult uh, to manage if you are vomiting or honestly, if you have any side effect, your practitioner needs to know right away so that they can address it and stop a medicine or perhaps add another medicine to take care of the side effect for a little while. And sometimes you can, uh, just with over a few days, it will go away on its own. Well, there are a variety of strategies, or I call them tricks of the trade, that we use for every single problem that a physician might encounter along the way. And I, I would say the other thing for practitioners to know is there are centers of excellence throughout the United States that usually have free consult lines that you can contact if you're, you and your patient are really hitting a stumbling block regarding, regarding side effects. Uh, and generally speaking, all of us that have practiced NTM lung disease management for years have some potential solutions for each and every one of the side effects that may come up. But rashes, as I say, are the most common problem and usually discontinuing the medication for a couple of weeks and then slowly reintroducing. Or sometimes we may add uh, an H2 blocker like famotidine, uh, which will help manage the rash and we can press on uh, with the drug. Or sometimes we have to contact an allergist and they may be able to desensitize the patient to that particular medication. The GI distress that I just alluded to, antacids, probiotics usually work quite well. And optic neuritis associated with the Thambutol in particular is very, very important. And again, I tell my patients, read small print like stock page size every day at the first sign of blurry vision two days in a row. You stop the Thambutol immediately. Let your physician know what's going on. They likely will need you to be seen by an ophthalmologist to check the back of your eye. And then we can see what direction we go in, whether we reintroduce the ethambutol just maybe less frequently or whether we need to stop it altogether and substitute some other antibiotic in for it. If a patient has a problem with any of the three pills that we started out with, we have to choose another drug to add on to the regimen. Or if by six months, your sputums are not becoming negative, we will add a fourth drug or sometimes a fifth drug. And the most common medication that we now add is Alice or amicacin liposome inhalation solution. And this is a nebulized antibiotic that we take every single day or have the patient take every single day. And the most common thing that may happen to your vocal cords once you start taking this nebulized treatment is you have hoarseness or in the worst case scenario, loss of voice. And this is easily managed. And the most common thing that we would do for a report of dysphonia is temporary stop the Alice nebulized treatments 
let the voice come back. And then we will restart maybe instead of every single day, maybe do it three times a week. In addition, we almost always have the patient just gargle some salt water daily because that seems to help soothe the voice and allow the changes to disappear. Sometimes we add a bronchodilator uh, such as albuterol and sometimes the patient is not able to get back to a daily basis, but they're able to do it three times a week, four times a week. We try to maximize how many days you're able to take the Alice. But usually the voice comes back within two weeks of stopping the Alice and we can retool and start again, in my experience. Hello, this is Gwen Hewitt, professor from National Jewish Health. Welcome to this educational activity on improving the patient experience in NTM lung disease. Well, in embarking on treatment for NTM lung disease, as I said earlier, patients should be started on guideline-based therapy, which is a rigorous scientific decision that helps guide clinicians to say, which antibiotics should I use for NTM lung disease? And guideline-based therapy is started with a macrolide, a rifamycin, and a thambutol, so three types of pills. But interestingly, when it was reviewed, recent study results showed that among uh, a little over 9,000 patients uh, new to MAC treatment, um, physicians started them out on guideline prescribed therapy only half of the time, so 51% of the time. And then if you get to the six-month mark, of treatment, gosh, we've lost 10 more percent. And then at a year's time, it's down to only 18% of patients that were still on guideline-based treatment. So that tells me that a lot of people are having a lot of side effects and perhaps either they're not communicating with their clinicians the problems that they're having and they're just dropping out of treatment or the physician and care team don't really know what to do when roadblocks are come upon. And that's my job to teach not only the patient, but the physicians what we can do to help people succeed in treatment. And the really, really important thing is we saw a lot of patients in my practice that were either started on totally inappropriate treatment, not guideline-based treatment, or so many people were just started on azithromycin alone or azithromycin plus one other drug. And we really never, never, never should ever be on azithromycin alone or azithromycin with a non-guideline-based antibiotic because the chance for the germ to become resistant to azithromycin is very high. And once your germ is resistant to azithromycin, your chance for success goes down dramatically and your treatment regimen becomes much more difficult. Well, why do so many patients not receive the proper care or aren't able to, as we say, adhere or I like to say succeed in treatment? And I think intolerance certainly plays into this or drug side effects, but honestly, this should not be a stumbling block to being successful because as I said, we have many, many tricks of the trade to help the patient overcome and uh, manage these side effects so that they can be successful. But as important, uh, these are all 
you know, it's a complicated regimen. There are several pills that you have to take or pills combined with nebulized treatment or intravenous treatment. And you might have other disease processes going on as well that the patient is having to take other medicines for. So it can be quite burdensome for the patient. And it's exceedingly important that they know that they've got a good team of people behind them to work with them and help them succeed. The importance of shared decision-making and communication with the patient needs to be stressed from the get-go. And once the team, including the patient, certainly most importantly, knows that they're going to be starting on medication, it's imperative that the patient be instructed about the the problems that may be encountered, potential side effects, and to, for the physician or and the care team to become familiar, familiar with these potential side effects that may occur so that as a team, they can be quick to respond with accurate information to help the patient succeed. And there really is no reason that a patient should fail in treatment of NTM lung disease because honestly, if their own physician doesn't know the way to go. As I said earlier, we have centers of excellence throughout the United States that either patients or physicians can contact to help them manage any potential side effects or stumbling blocks that are occurring along the way. Additionally, we as the care team need to try to make the treatment regimen the least burdensome as possible. And that may be a matter of choosing drugs that are only taken three times a week if you have minimal disease, or taking all pills at the same time if your stomach can tolerate it. And honestly, most of my patients could, particularly with the addition of, let's say, a probiotic or an antacid or something. It's It should be manageable. And realizing and understanding that the patient may have other medications, certainly, than these antibiotics to take, and we have to be able to be mindful that they may have a complicated daily medication routine and we should try not to complicate that further. We also need need to be sure that we're adhering to guideline-based treatment and never give a macrolide by itself. Even though it may be tolerated, we're going to breed drug resistance and the worst possible outcomes happen with macrolide-resistant NTM lung disease. We hope you found this activity to be informative and useful to your practice. Thank you again for participating. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash WCS860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from INSMED.